How do we use important ideas to help change ourselves for the better? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we dip into our vault, like we have a vault, but we dip into our vault for an interview we conducted a few years ago. Now, we had thought the tape version of this was ruined, but Ken, being the genius that he is, located a digital version that we'd like you to hear. We call it The Contrarian Show, and we talk to an expert on the works of Ernest Becker as he responds to some of our audience's questions and objections. That's right. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Dan Lichty. Dan Lichty, Ph.D., Doctor of Ministry, is a professor of social work at Illinois State University, where he teaches human behavior. He is trained in academic religious studies, mental health work, and pastoral counseling, and is a licensed clinical social worker. You'd have to say he's the world's foremost authority on the work of Ernest Becker, right? Yep, absolutely. And he's, he's author or editor of nine books, including The Ernest Becker Reader, Transference and Transcendence, Death and Denial, and Reflecting on Faith in a Post-Christian Time. He's also an avid amateur folk singer. Here's the interview with Dr. Lichty. Dr. Lichty, welcome to Perspective. <laughs> Good to be here. Welcome back, I should say. Now, this is The Contrarian Show. We're going to talk about people's objections, other people's objections to Ernest Becker's ideas. Now, you're an authority on Becker. What are some of his, his main ideas? Well, I think the most important thing that Becker did was bring together a lot of material that had been written, studies that had been done, philosophy, a lot of material dealing with human behavior. And he kind of read this stuff, and he looked at it, and he's trying to find themes that are running through it, and he had an insight that we are motivated at our deepest level by a need to deny the fact of our death, the fact of our mortality. And once he had that idea and started then going back through all this material again, he showed how very different kinds of ideas can be linked together through that organizing principle. And I think that's really the heart of his ideas. So it's, it's the denial of death, not necessarily the fear, but the fact that we deny that we're inevitably going to die. Well, yes. I mean, fear of death, that's a phrase that gets used a lot. But most people think of that as fear of concrete falling over and dying. For Becker, death is a complex symbol, a symbol of diminishment, of vulnerability, of weakness, and so forth. And so basically, he's saying that what we have this need to do is to deny our vulnerability, our weaknesses, the things that are diminishing to us. And that's the kind of thing that gets linked together as a denial of death. Now, it, it does have to do with concrete death in the sense that the thing that makes death such a problem to us is that we share with all other animals this overriding urge to continue living, the life instinct. We see that in all species. But we have the intelligence then to know that it won't happen. So we're the only species that has the intelligence to recognize that we are mortal creatures. Other species may also fear death in the moment, but they don't carry that fear with them. They don't carry that knowledge of death with them over potentially any minute of the day. We, most of the time, we don't keep death awareness on our primary 
It's not primarily in front of us in our consciousness because we have all sorts of mechanisms we use to push it aside. This is also part of Becker's understanding of human we probably, psychology. We probably couldn't function if we were thinking about our death every minute. We wouldn't get our feet out of bed in the morning. Well, if we were really realistic about all the dangers, we would be totally stunned because right now, God forbid, an airplane could drop through the sky right on us right now. And if we recognize, if we were aware of those kind, I mean, we could right now die in thousands of different ways. And if we had that kind of awareness consciously in front of us all the time, we would just be cowering. As Sheldon Salma said, cowering in the corner, groping for a valium the size of a Buick. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. So, so in order to function, we have psychological mechanisms to sort of push these things out of consciousness. This is what makes human psychology different from animal psychology. We have the same animal needs. We have the same needs for closeness. We have the same needs for food. We have the same needs for procreation, you know, procreation whatever. We share all that with, anim with other animal species and even with higher mammals' emotions and so forth. But we have the ability to know that we will die. And that's something that, as far as we know, no other animal species has. And that really creates a whole different psychological ballgame. And the repression of that knowledge causes what Becker calls the anxiety and what the existentialists refers to the existential condition, yeah. our impending doom, the anxiety over our inevitable death. We have the knowledge of our mortality. And that, says Becker, that basically contours the way we do everything. We have sex just like animals have sex, but we don't just have sex. We have love and we have, it's a big ritual and there's, you can mate here, but not here. We have all these things that make our mating much more than simply mating. It's all a symbolic kind of, what would you say, pageantry to really make us sort of feel like our, what we're doing is not just animal. Animal dies, but we're spiritual. We're more than animal, you see? And I think that's really what the heart of Becker's ideas are. Then why should we listen to Becker? I mean, it's an interesting theory, but lots of people have interesting theories. Why should I listen to Becker? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose the best argument for at least giving this stuff a hearing is that if what it's saying is true about human beings and about human behavior, then there's, first of all, some intrinsic value in truth itself. And the second thing is that we're in trouble. As a species, we're in major trouble. And this at least helps us understand why we're in that kind of trouble and what we may be able to do to pull ourselves out of it, or at least make things a little less uh, a killing field than history has been, our life together. It's a very interesting subject because when I first was exposed to it through the birth and death of meaning, I was fascinated and immediately transfixed by it, and as you are and the other people we all know. Mm -hmm. But this doesn't seem to be something that gets everybody excited, and right. I've even tried showing episodes of the show to people, and they look at me like, people <laughs> have two heads. Why yeah. don't you have something more important yeah. to think about? Are people uh, predisposed in one way or another to be interested in this or not interested in this? I can't understand why everybody doesn't think this is really interesting, but they don't. Yeah. Well, I think that it takes some mental discipline to really concentrate on these ideas and see how they fit together. And I think that some of it is just, we're used to thinking in sound bites and we're used to thinking in very quick images and so forth. And, and in a way, you almost have to be trained or have it be part of your training to really sit down and, I mean, most people don't even read books from cover to cover anymore. And so it takes some mental discipline and 
any kind of discipline, I suppose, is unpleasant. But are people, some people predisposed yeah. to see the world this way as other people are predisposed to hold on to the accepted, conventional, established way of seeing things? The party line. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you could say that the culture conspires to keep these, if these ideas were widespread, then the mechanism that culture uses to help us keep our death anxiety under wouldn't work anymore. I think we said this before, like when the curtain gets pulled back in The Wizard of Oz, the wizard up there is just as terrible and as awesome as he was before, but when you see the mechanisms, it loses its ability to really inspire anymore. And I think there is a certain amount of that with this, uh, with these ideas, that in a sense the culture conspires to keep truth from us. But I think more than that, anytime people can be convinced of all sorts of things, and they could only have been convinced of that at the right time in their life. And whether it be that could be a religious truth or it could be a, an attachment to scientific ideas or whatever it be, if it didn't hit them at the right time in their life, it would have not been focused on. And I think that's the same with this. I mean, they have to be... You have to be ready. Yeah. Some people are simply not at the place in their life where they... And may never be, and maybe they don't need to be either. I'm not saying everybody, this isn't a religious cult. We're not out to try to make everyone. We're not Moonies. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, but, but we're not, we're not out to try to make everyone. Here's the ideas. They're here. They make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Maybe parts of it make more sense than other parts to other people. It's just an offering of some of the ideas. See how they see how they see are how they accepted or rejected. It's not. Well, let's, 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 start, yeah, let's yeah. start with some of the objections we've heard because I've tried to share this with people. And the first thing they say is, "This is a very dark and negative subject. Life is short. Why are you spending all your time thinking about death? Why don't you just live your life and forget about it?" Well, I think most of us are thinking about death unconsciously most of the time, anyway. And so, yes, death is dark, but it's a part of life, and it's not. I mean, there's many parts of life that aren't pleasant necessarily, but we still need to look at them. We still need to figure out how these parts relate and so forth. And I think that in that sense, death is no less pleasant or no less, no more dark, let's say, than many other parts of, of our lives. But I haven't found dwelling on these ideas, thinking about these ideas and so forth, I haven't found them to be a, made me a dark and negative person at all. In fact, quite the opposite. It's been very freeing. I feel that there's a possibility here of being much less driven by your unconscious desires and your unconscious forces when you at least start to get a grip on what's going on there, what, where the puppet strings are. But now, one of the objections is that Becker is obsessed with death, and that isn't he like Freud, and he's, he's got a narrow, obsessive, simplistic focus. How do you respond to that? Well, in the first place, I don't think that's true, that Becker was obsessed with death. He only really talked about it much at all in the last couple books, but I've been working on this anthology of Becker's complete writings and have all of his complete writings in a file, and I, I did a word search on them, just how many times are words used, and the word that's used the most often in Becker's writings is life. It's used almost twice as often as the word death. So it could be life. Life gets used in all sorts of different ways. There's no context in this, but just word count, life is used much more than death. So I don't think it's true that Becker was obsessed with death. Now, as far as focusing in on one idea, like Freud focused on sex and aggression, well, basically, all scientific thinking, the method of science is to try to find 
principles that take a lot of data and see where the connections are and boil that data down. A theory is basically a way of talking about a lot of material in a few concepts. So all scientific thinking does this. You could argue scientific thinking isn't the right way to go. Well, okay, but in our culture, that's what we do. And so in that sense, I don't, I mean, Becker was a scientist, yeah. But here's a common objection. People will say, I'm not afraid of death. I never even, I, I never even think about it. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, thou protestest too much, probably. <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't say that necessarily to a person who's raising that objection, but I, I would probably be thinking that. I don't think about death. I don't think about death. Well, you know, most of us do. And I don't think you could watch any television without thinking about death. I don't think you could watch any news show without thinking about death. I don't think that you could do most of the things we do in our daily life and never have death cross your mind. You may be quickly put that aside, or you may quickly put it out of your consciousness. You may be very good at doing that. You may be able to convince yourself in a way like this. If you do think about death, well, that happens to other people, but it doesn't happen to me or something like that. But it's just part of who we are. That's been one of the things that's helped us survive. The fact that we could foresee these dangers and therefore guard against them. That's what kept us from being saber-toothed tiger food. So I think that's part of our makeup to think about that. We're going to take a little break. Okay. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Dan Lichty about uh, objections to Ernest Becker's theories. We'll be back in a minute. We're talking with Dr. Dan Lichty of Illinois State University, talking about the theories of Ernest Becker. And especially about people's objections to them when you try to bring it up to them. That, that, yeah. Because yeah. you get a lot of them. And here's and another get, one. They kind of glaze over when you start to talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, here's another one uh, that I've heard a lot. They say, this is a neat trick. You claim that I'm repressing the truth, and therefore everything I say or think can be refuted with your claim that I'm deluded. How do you know that you're not the one who's deluded? <laughs> people have said after several libations. Aren't you expressing a belief or faith in something unseen? Well, yeah. In the first place, I wouldn't say that someone is deluded. There's many theories of human behavior that explain a whole lot, that have a whole lot of truth in them and explain a whole lot of chunks of human behavior, very important pieces of what we do. I think the thing that this theory has going for it is that it can encompass a lot of those and bring them together, show how they're related to each other. So I wouldn't say that someone's deluded if they have some doubts about this. In fact, I would say have doubts about it. Have doubts about it. Trust your doubts. Explore your doubts. Your doubts are a good avenue into, into further exploration and not being duped. What was the second part of the question then? Aren't you expressing a belief and faith in something unseen by virtue of our theories here? Unseen. Well, Becker was very, very big on empirical. Now, he defined empiricism more like the way William James did. Right. Broad ex human experience. But there are also empirical, in the more narrow sense, empirical laboratory kinds of testing studies. That I think you've had Sheldon Solomon on this show before. And what they've done, what he and his colleagues have done, is really show that, that a lot of these ideas are testable, or hypotheses spun out from these ideas, are testable in laboratory situations. And they've done this very broadly and shown that it's a very plausible theory. It's certainly as plausible as any other psychological theory, and more plausible than, than most of them. 
So I don't think it's a matter of belief in something unseen. But if a person has doubts about these things, go with the doubts. Investigate the doubts. Don't just take something because it's told to you. But now Becker relies heavily. You mentioned James, but he relies yeah. most heavily, I think, on Freud. Oh, well, yeah, and, yeah. And some of the objections are, are either they don't accept Freud or they consider right. Freud outmoded, his ideas right. in the unconscious. How do you respond to that? Well, actually, Becker relied most strongly on Otto Rank, oh. who, who was an, initially one of Freud's early, in the early circles of Freud, but he actually got sort of excommunicated from the Freudian circle because he started concentrating on the mother-child relationship rather than the father-child relationship and saying, this is really something we have to look at. Freud came around to much the same ideas later on himself, but at the time, it wasn't the time to challenge the, the master, so to speak. And so he was sort of excommunicated. But the idea of the unconscious, that, right. I think Becker's theory sort of hinge on the idea that there is an unconscious and that there's these repression and yeah. transference and these psychological things are at work. Well, for Becker, the unconscious really wasn't very mysterious. I mean, Becker said, basically, he's saying that, that as people grow up, they learn habitual behaviors in how to react in certain situations. And then when they encounter new situations, they draw on those habitual behaviors to address the new situations. And sometimes those things are very helpful because the new situation really is kind of like this back here. But oftentimes the new situation is totally different. But they're still drawing on habitual behaviors that were functional or that were learned in a, in a different situation, and they're really off the wall. So they're really dysfunctional. But basically, the unconscious for Becker is that pool of learned experience or learned behavior. I mean, it's not a mysterious thing. It's not like a little human in, inside your brain that's really running the show or something like that. It's pretty straightforward stuff. Dan, what do you say to the person who says, I'm not going to die. My soul is immortal. I have my faith and I will live on through my faith. What would I say to that person? Yeah. Uh, it, it, Party on? Well, I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah, maybe that would be one way to say I think that's, that's great. I, as long as that person isn't harming someone else to maintain that faith, then I think that's great. That's think, working for you? Yeah, but I, I wouldn't even say it quite that flippantly or, or cynically. I, I suppose one thing I'd be saying in my head was, boy, I wish I had that kind of, I wish I had that because... Especially if, if it's le helping them lead a good life, yeah. they love their wife, they love their children, or if they're a woman, they love their husband, or whatever it be, their spouse. It gives them the courage to get up every day and, and do what needs to be done, and when they encounter someone in need, they help and do what they can. I mean, that's really heroic, and I think that's really good. And if that's what, if that faith is what helps them do that, motivates them to do that, helps them do that, then I think that's wonderful. It's probably working better for them than what... Mine is for me. I know. I have that jealousy uh, yeah. often thinking yeah. back. Before. Existential wish, jealousy. Yeah, which I didn't know this that I know. Yeah. Uh, so is Becker destructive, would you say, of religious faith? No, I wouldn't say he's destructive. I mean, Becker himself was a social scientist, but he believed in God, and he practiced, at least to some extent, practiced his, his own faith, which was Jewish. He went to services, and he was especially fond of reading the Psalms every morning and so forth. So I don't think Becker was at all irreligious or destructive of religion, but he pointed out very clearly that religion can be a force, a dangerous force, because when it's your religion that gives you your sense of transcendence of death, and then someone else comes along and challenges that, in a sense, any challenge to your religion can become 
a mortal challenge. And it can lead people to do very terrible things in the name of their religion to stamp out the heretics. In other words, to get rid of anything that would cause doubt for me in my religion. And one of the things this theory does is show us why that the mechanism, that mechanism is so intrinsic to religion, particularly, I think, to religion. But, but now it, it's he, also that God is also our best source of transcendence. I mean, that's, let's face it. God is our symbol of transcendence. If we can hold to our symbols of God, in a sense, loosely, not feeling we have to protect them and we have to, if we can be a little bit more loose about it. And so when you encounter someone with a different belief, that's not so much a challenge to your faith, but rather an opportunity for, to open yourself up and grow more and learn more from that person. Then religion can be a very, very positive force. And it can be the, well, for most people, it is the thing that really gives their life meaning, gives them a sense of hope gives them a sense that they need to think about that which is beyond just their own self and their own life and so forth. I mean, most of the time when religion functions as a motivation for altruism, for example, it can be very, very effective and very, very good. And Becker is not destructive of that kind of religion, I don't think. But now, the Rush Limbaugh objection, I'm not quoting him, but to him, the world consists of good people, bad people. Good is what good people do. Evil is what bad people do. Aren't you... Yeah. Overcomplicating things with all of this references to psychology and isn't it pretty clear cut what's good and bad? Well, all of us, and, and again, I think this theory helps us understand why all of us have a desire to divide the world into the good guys and the bad guys, and we're the good guys. And in a sense, not to pick on you, but even using the Rush Limbaugh's of the world is an example of that. Rush Limbaugh is a human being and deserves respect as a human being and and has some good things to say, I think. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So, no, no I, I listen to Rush Limbaugh, and I, yeah. I enjoy his show. Yeah. But I think that but the point I'm trying to make is that it's not... The good guys also divide the world into good guys and bad guys, and that's a bad thing that good guys do, you see? And I think the thing that this theory helps us see is that there's... It's not to say that evil is sort of a unreality or anything like that. Evil is very real. But evil's even in the best of people, evil still lurks in the heart of the best of people. And most of the time, when you're identifying yourself as one of the good ones and they're the bad ones, that right there should be a signal that you need to do a little bit more introspection. In a sense, it has a lot of parallels with the doctrine of sin that you find in many religions, that, that even the best of saints have Yeah, have weaknesses and have, and so I think that this theory helps a person criticize or recognize, first of all, and criticize in themselves that tendency to bifurcate and put people into categories of good and bad. And because basically when you put someone in the category of bad, well, what's the next step? Eradication. Right. Get rid of them. That's the danger. Okay. Here's another one. This is from LLB. L.L. Bean? L.L. Bean. No. <laughs> Although Becker's theory may uh, provide explanations to the dark side of human nature, it does not give any clear guidance on solutions. Even if one understands his ideas, it is difficult to translate them into actions in our daily lives to avoid human tragedies. Where are the solutions for a good life? Well, partially, I think what I just said is sort of that. This is a theory that really gets you to see the world in new ways and start to understand that that the good and the bad is not, these are not us and them. This is not us and them, but rather to start really looking at yourself and to recognize that whereas you may be the best person when it comes to politics, 
you still lord it over your family, for example, like a tyrant. This theory helps you understand that there's relationship there between politics and personal life, between your inward life and your outward life. And so I do think it would be difficult to construct a kind of a social model out of this that you could then go and impose on a country or on a people and say, now live this way and everything will be fine. But what it does do is give us a lot of headway in changing ourselves for the better and understanding that that's also part of social and political change as well. Dan, thank you. Our guest has been Dr. Dan Lichty of Illinois State University. Dan, thank you for another terrific conversation. It's been great. It was great. Great having you here. You've been listening to an interview with Dan Lichty as he responds to some of our audience's questions and concerns about the ideas of Ernest Becker. Yeah, you know, when I approached him and said, we'd like to use this in this interview, he said, just remember that my views have changed over the years. So maybe we'll get to ask him sometime what some of the changes are. So, yeah. Mr. Ken, what's your takeaway? Well, I like the way he answered your question, why should I listen to the ideas of Ernest Becker? And before I say his responses, I'd like to digress a little bit, because you know I always like to put in a Joseph Campbell quip whenever I can. And I'm remembering back to when he's talking to Bill Moyers, and Bill Moyers asks a similar question, why should I care about mythology? What does mythology have to do with my life? And Campbell's response is startling. He says, well, my first response to that is, well, go ahead, go on and live your life. It's a good life. You don't need this. And then he says, I don't believe in being caught up by ideas because they're said to be important and interesting. He says, I believe in getting into an idea because I'm caught by it somehow. And he says, I think with a proper introduction, this subject will catch you. And it makes me think of how Ernest Becker's ideas caught me they caught you. Sheldon has a whole story and a year of his life to the way Ernest Becker's ideas caught him. So the first response that I have in my head to Becker is, well, maybe you shouldn't be interested in Becker. Well, I mean, but it, it caught me because his ideas made perfect sense. And I had never well, heard of or read anyone that made so much sense. That's all. Well, I agree. I guess the point is more that some people are interested in ideas and abstract notions and things about the future and connecting it to the past and all things like that. And some people really don't like to do that kind of well introspection. True enough. Not that there's any right or wrong thing. It's just, you know, you and I have both tried to interest a lot of people in this and the, uh, the margin is slim. <laughs> but people who get it really get it. So Dan had two great responses to the question, why should I listen to Ernest Becker? The first one he said was that there's some intrinsic value in truth, yeah. which he says, I think most everyone would agree with that. Yep. And he maintains that Becker is speaking the truth in what he's written. And Dan also said that we're in trouble as a species. We're in major trouble. And this at least helps us to understand why we're in that kind of trouble and what we may be able to do to pull ourselves out of it. And you and I, as cultural critics, would have to agree with that completely. Absolutely, yeah. And as well-reasoned and well-said on Dan's part. Yeah. He said that thinking about Becker's ideas has not made him a negative person. In fact, quite the opposite. It's been very freeing. He said, there's a possibility here of being much less driven by your unconscious desires 
and your unconscious forces when you at least start to get a grip on what's going on there. As I see it, the key here is to accept the existence of an unconscious mind and understand how the invisible forces affect your life. A lot of people don't accept the the notion of an unconscious mind, and I think this is key to what Becker is about. Yeah, and he's taking that directly from Freud, I would refer back to my original statement that it requires an abstract leap and some people just aren't up for it. Okay. Anyway, he makes an excellent point and he said that it's part of our makeup to think about death. And as you and I have discussed recently, I think about death virtually every day, don't you? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, especially at this age, you can't you can't avoid it as your body disintegrates. You don't you can avoid it. And a lot of people are trying to avoid it. And that's exactly the energy that's driving this machine that's going off in a its own direction seemingly. Yeah. (laughs) Our culture tends to discourage references to death using terms like passed on or passed away. Resting in peace, eternal rest, demise, deceased, departed, gone, lost, or slipped away. <laughs> how about, how about yeah. you die? I mean, what's wrong with yeah, that? Yeah, it always, it, it always drives me crazy when they say he passed. What, like he, like he, like he yeah. graduated high school or something. Anyway, the, the right. subject of religion has always been difficult for me to square with Becker's work. Dan said Becker was a social scientist, but he believed in God, and he practiced, at least to some extent, his own faith, which was Jewish. That was that was kind of a revelation to me. I never heard anyone say that before Dan said that. Yeah. And Dan said Becker went to services, and he was especially fond of reading the Psalms every morning. Wow. Dan doesn't think Becker was irreligious or destructive of religion, but that Becker pointed out very clearly that religion can be a dangerous force because when it's your religion that gives you your sense of transcendence over death and then someone else comes along and challenges that, well, any challenge to your religion can, in a sense, become a mortal challenge. He said it can lead people to produce very terrible things in the name of their religion like stamping out heretics, for example, to get rid of anything that would cause doubt. One of the things that Becker's theories shows us is why that mechanism is so intrinsic to religion. I still struggle with the notion of fantasy and illusion when it comes to religion. Maybe I'll figure it out in a few years. Really, Steve? How many years do you think you've got? (laughs) Not many. (laughs) Amen, brother. (laughs) Amen. Uh, Dan went on to say that when you encounter someone with a different belief, it doesn't necessarily need to be a challenge to your faith, but rather an opportunity to open yourself up and grow more and learn more from that person. The thing that really gives the other person's life meaning and gives them a sense of hope. In that framing, religion can be a very positive force. And he gave me a little chiding, which I probably deserved at the time. Probably. Thanks, pal. I appreciate that. He said, all of us have a desire to divide the world into the good guys and the bad guys, and we're the good guys. He said, 
evil is very real, and evil still lurks in the hearts of the best people. Most of the time, when you're identifying yourself as one of the good ones, and they are the bad ones, that right there should be a signal to you that you need to do a little more introspection. What can I say? He's 100% right. Steve, I think we all need to do a little more introspection. You think? Uh, Yeah, I do. Uh, Dan (laughs) Dan basically said, when you put someone in the category of bad, what's the next step? Eradication, right? You want to get rid of them. You know, if it's bad, you get rid of it. And you know that's the danger because Becker's work really gets you to see the world in new ways and start to understand that this is not a situation of us and them. These ideas can really help you start looking at yourself. Yeah, looking at yourself and, you know, making room for people who have other ideas, different values, different beliefs. That's definitely not, not the direction we're going in right now. Yeah, maybe some folks in Washington would find this helpful. Ah, uh, Steve, a topic for another show. <laughs> Very good. Right, so, Dan said Becker's theories help you understand that there's a relationship between politics and personal life, between your inward life and your outward life. He thinks it would be difficult to construct a kind of social model out of this that you could then go and impose on a country or on a people and say, now live this way and everything will be fine. But what it does do is give us a lot of headway in changing ourselves for the better and understanding that that's also part of social and political change as well. Yeah, we've talked about these ideas over the years, but it's great to hear them laid out this way. I agree. I always enjoy listening to Dan. I mean, Dan, you know, Dan's Dan's great. And reading his books as well. He's a terrific writer. Sure. Dan is virtually brimming with important ideas. (laughs) I like that. He's brimming. Okay. So, folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. We are grateful for your encouragement. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash thehubimportantideas. We are 100% listener supported. We are most grateful for your support. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. This has been a Contemporary Heroism Initiative production.